singular, not revelations, okay? I know that we live in the day and age where we call it the Walmarts, and I get stuff off the Amazons, and, you know, like we pluralize everything because that's what we do, but it's called the singular revelation. And I say that because the book of Revelation to many is this uh, sealed book. Well, we can't really understand what it says, but I'm going to show you that it's not a sealed book, and John was given this revelation by God, and it's for our benefit. And so as we get started, I want to point out that the word revelation actually is in the Greek apocalypsis, or apo- where we get our word apocalypse. Now, if you've seen movies like Apocalypse Now, you're like, oh gosh, that's, that's intense. But the idea, the word apocalypse actually means unveiling. To, to unveil Jesus Christ. Now, if you have a King James Bible, it probably says the revelation of St. John the Divine. And I want to tell you that the Bible author did not write that. Um, that was put in there later. Even though I know that Jesus spoke King James, uh, like many people think, the reality is they put that heading in there later. It's not divinely inspired. So it is actually the singular, singular revelation of Jesus Christ. Now, the word revelation means the unveiling, and I have there for you a picture, some of you might be baseball fans, of Stan Musial, and it's a statue of him up to bat, and look what they're doing. They're removing the cloth from it, unveiling it, revealing it to those who would admire it, and I, had a, I actually had a picture of Adam Wainwright, and it was interesting because I found it, and I was like, oh, well, this is cool. This looks new. But apparently the coaches or something to do with the, the city of St. Louis, it, they actually sent a statue to, of Adam Wainwright to China, which I didn't realize there was ties there. So I, I learned something new. Um, but what was interesting is that it was a gift to them of Adam Wainwright. So I don't know what the connection is, but as they would put this out where they're going to display it, typically they, they remove something off the top of it so you can see it. It's an unveiling. And so I love this because if you think about our relationship with Jesus Christ, we are the bride of Christ. And yet, in kind of the opposite of what we're used to, usually the bride wears the veil, right? Well, in this case, it's God who's veiled, and he's veiled, and as the veil is removed, we see him for all that he is. Think about it. The picture of us getting to heaven being there for the first time, the, the most glorious piece of heaven is going to be where we see our Savior face to face. And we will see him for all that he actually is. And at that point, we won't be in our flesh. We'll be able to be in his presence and not snuffed out in his holiness. We'll see him face to face for the first time and we'll see him as he is. And as he is, we will also be because he's been conforming us into the image of Jesus. And so the author here, it says in verse 1, it says the revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants, things which must shortly take place, and he sent and signified it by his angel to his servant John, who bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ to all things that he saw. So We start here with him laying out who gave this vision to John. So God the Father gave the message to Jesus. Jesus gave it to his messenger, an angel. An angel gave it to the apostle John. 
But what was the purpose in him giving this revelation? It was to show his servants things which will take place shortly. Now, if you're reading this, you might have the same question that I did. If it was going to take place shortly, and this was written, many believe, to be around 96 AD, uh, we're at 2020 AD. So what does shortly mean? Because to me, that's a long time. That's 2,000 years, give or take, right? So what I'll have for you there is the word shortly. It means once these things begin, they'll happen quickly over a brief period of time. So it's not that these things will happen shortly, right after I give them to you. It's that when these things take place, they'll happen quickly. And so he says, I want you to be ready. Now, this is one of the most misunderstood books. And you know that because many of you go, the book of Revelation, I've read it, but it creeps me out. The first time I actually read the book of Revelation, I was sitting in a deer stand. So if you're one of the people that says, I can commune with God in the deer woods, I believe that. But many of you don't take your Bibles when you say that. So I just want to point that out. But I did take mine as a, as a teenager. I wasn't walking with Jesus. I just, I was so bored sitting on the deer stand. And so I had one of those Gideon pocket New Testaments. And so I took it with me because I had already read all the other books. You know, most of the books I read growing up were uh, books, by the way, that were based on the movie. Some of you read and watch movies that were based on the book, and you're like, oh, that was a horrible movie because the book was way better. I was always like, the movie was way better that the book was based on. Maybe that's not you, but that's me. Um, but I, I got bored with that, and so I started reading the New Testament. Now, I'll tell you, if you've ever decided I want to read through the Bible, my first interaction with the Bible was I read Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John straight through. And I didn't have any idea of the context. So as I'm reading them, I go, why are these four guys telling the same exact story? Like, didn't I, I got through Matthew and then I read Mark and I was like, didn't, didn't Matthew already say all this stuff? And then later I found out that's because it's four witnesses of the same exact story through different eyes. And so it was eye-opening just to see that. Um, but I'm off on a rabbit trail. So this is one of the most misunderstood neglected and feared books in the New Testament. Oh, that's what I was saying. So I did read the book of Revelation while I was sitting in the deer stand. And you know what happened? I got really creeped out. I was like, what's this dragon and the woman and the mystery Babylon? And it was just so hard to understand. What I found out, though, is that most of the book of Revelation actually is quotes and pieces of the Old Testament. And so it's tying together everything all the way from the beginning to the end, and it's showing what all that stuff ties into to reveal Jesus at the end. So, though it's misunderstood and neglected and feared, yet verse 3 says there's a blessing attached to those who read it, those who hear its message, and those who walk in it. Verse 3, he says, blessed is he who reads and those who hear the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who keep those things which are written in it, for the time is near. And so all of those things kind of wrap up into the, the purpose of this book. We know who wrote it. We know why it was written. We know um, that there's a blessing attached to just reading it. It doesn't say if you read it and you ever understand every little minutia, then you're blessed. It says just simply if you read it, there's a blessing. And so uh, I don't know about you guys, but if, if somebody says you're going to be blessed if you do this, why not? It didn't cost me a thing except some time. So, 
there are four different approaches to the book of Revelation. One is the preterist view. Uh, That view says that everything in this book symbolizes the struggles of the church against Rome in the past. All of it has been fulfilled, and it was fulfilled by the time that Jerusalem was destroyed by the Romans in AD 70. Christ's physical reign hasn't occurred yet, though. So I reject this view because it talks about Christ's physical millennial reign in 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 the future. And so since that hasn't taken place yet, I reject the preterist view. Secondly, there's the historic view. This view says that that Revelation symbolizes the historic problems that the church has had with the world. Now, it's hard to stretch and bend history to fit this view. You almost have to read into every historical event that's ever taken place and go, see, this fits here and this fits here, and then you got to change when it happened and, and the, the continuity of it. So I also don't prescribe to this view. Now, there's also an allegorical view. Now, I don't know about you guys, but I really enjoy books that are allegory because you can kind of draw a lot of interpretations out of them. If you've ever read uh, the book Pilgrim's Progress, it was written by John, I was going to say John Bunyan, but isn't that the, the guy that cuts down trees? Uh, Paul Bunyan, there you go. But anyway, Pilgrim's Progress, doesn't matter who wrote it. Uh, <laughs> an uneducated man wrote this book, and it was, it was all allegory. And out of this allegory, you draw these spiritual um, lessons. And so it's very good, and yet if you take the Bible and you start to ascribe to it allegory what it does is it kind of makes it wishy-washy and implies that it really doesn't mean one thing it can mean lots of things and i i don't believe that's to be true it says that this view says it's a spiritual allegory without direct application to actual events this view allows you to make it whatever you want and it ignores old testament prophecy about the end times so again this third view i also reject but then there's this futurist view, and this spoiler alert, spoiler alert is the one that I ascribe to. It says that Revelation is in fact a straightforward account of what is to come, which actually fits with Jesus' teaching in uh, Matthew chapter 24, when he taught the, basically what's going to happen in the future. And if you haven't read it, read Matthew chapter 24, and it'll actually tie in a lot of the things we're going to re- learn in Revelation. So this is the view that I believe, and it's based on uh, Revelation chapter 1, verse 19. Revelation chapter 1, verse 19 says this, Write the things which you have seen, the things which are, the things which will take place after this. So Jesus, in your Bibles where you have red letters, this is Jesus speaking specifically to John, and he says, I want you to write the things which you have seen, I want you to write the things which are right now happening, and I want you to write the things which will take place after this. And so this is the outline that we see in the book of Revelation. If you want to know everything that it's going to outline, right here in chapter 1, we have what you have seen. And he's going to reveal Jesus for all that John had already seen. And in chapter 2 through 3, he says, write the things which are. And we have letters written specifically to seven churches. Now, many believe that these churches were actually uh, allegorical churches. Again, if you 
prescribed to that, that view. But the problem with that is that there were actually seven churches at the time that this letter was written, and it was actually on a mailing route. You could take one big loop, and as you took that loop, you could actually go to each one of these churches in Asia, and they could write the things and speak the things that Jesus writes in chapter 2 and 3. And then verse chapter 4 through 22, he says, write the things which will take place after this. And in the Greek, after this is the word metatauta, which means after these things. Now, how do we know that chapter 4 is actually where after these things starts in the letter? Well, if you look at chapter 4, verse 1, it actually says the same exact phrase in the English and in the Greek. After these things I looked... And behold, a door standing open in heaven. And then he, from chapter 4 all the way through chapter 22, you have the end of all things laid out very specifically. And so all that to say that there is an outline and we can know which pieces are speaking about which time. But it's interesting that he says, write the things you have seen, write the things that are, and write the things that will be because God refers to himself even in this letter as the one who is, the one who was, and the one who is to come. He's the ever-present God. He's not in time like you and I are. I think one of the hardest things we have believing in a God who we cannot see and yet he was before the foundation of the earth, he was. And now that we are, he is. And in the future, where we have not yet been, he is. And, and it's, it's hard to explain. So the one way I can think to, to say that is DVR. Now, none of you have DVR. None of you have it programmed to where you can see all your shows that you don't have time to watch and you won't later. But in case you do, DVR is a way for us to be, in a way, not to be blasphemous like God, Right? Because we can record shows that we're not able to watch and see them later. All of history, from God's perspective, has already taken place. It's already taken place. And we struggle to wrap our minds around even a minutia of that. Because we are finite, and yet God is infinite. And so with that being said, not only is he able to tell us the future... He knows how it will play out because he's already seen it. It's DVR'd. It's, it's on syndication. It's like when I watch an episode of MASH because I've seen them all a thousand times and we watch five, the first five minutes, I can tell you the synopsis of the rest of it. Why? Because I've already seen it. I already know how it plays out. And so God is the same way, except he doesn't have DVR. He's just ever present. And so the, the letter, according to verse 4, of chapter 1. It says, John, to the seven churches which are in Asia. Now, if you allegorize that, you wouldn't ever say, well, it was in Asia. You would say, to seven churches that have these attributes. But he says, to seven churches which are located in Asia. And then he writes, grace to you and peace, not from John, but it says, from him who is him who was, and him who is to come. Interesting to me because as we've been studying through the New Testament, every one of these letters that are written to different areas, different churches, it always says grace and peace, and some of them say grace, mercy, and peace. And then it says from who and to who. So 
This time, it's not from John, it's not from Paul, it's actually from Jesus Christ. Grace to you and peace from Jesus, who is, who was, and who is to come, and from the seven spirits who are before his throne, and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead, and the ruler over the kings of the earth. Now, that's a lot to unpack, but he's, I don't know about you guys, but I see the Trinity in this. It says, from him who was, him who is, and him who is to come. The Father, the ever-present one. He says, I am. And this is not the first time he's introduced himself as I am. The phrase, I am, is not just I exist, but I always existed. And so with that being said, if you remember the story from Exodus chapter 3, God himself reveals himself to Moses in the desert. And he does it how? In a burning bush. And, and he, when he introduces himself, and then he tells Moses, here, I'm going to send you into Egypt, and you're going to be the deliverer for my people. You're going to bring them out of bondage. And Moses hears all of this, and then he argues with God and basically tells him, I have a speech impediment. Who am I to go speak to Pharaoh? He's the king over all Egypt. And then God works through all that with him. He's gracious. But then he says, who am I going to tell them who sent me? Like, am I supposed to go in and go, hey, I got a vision in a burning bush, and they're going to send me out of town as a laughing stock and say, you're crazy. And he says, tell my people that I am has sent you. And that name is the covenant name of God that he has given to his people all the way through. I am the ever-present one. I am everything that you need. I am your provider. I always was. And so with that being said, he's introducing himself in the New Testament and in the Old Testament, the same that he always has. But then he says something interesting in verse 4. He says, the seven spirits before the throne. Now, wait a minute. God's one spirit. He's the Holy Spirit. But that's not what he's saying. This is the sevenfold witness of the Spirit spoken of in Isaiah chapter 11 in verse 2. Isaiah 11 verse 2 gives us the sevenfold Spirit. And it's not that there's seven spirits so much as there are seven ways that the Spirit manifests Himself. I said 11, not seven. So, Maybe you remember this prophecy in Isaiah 11. In verse 1, he says, There shall come forth a rod from the stem of Jesse, which is King David's father. So on the throne of David would always sit a ruler until Shiloh comes. But he says, A branch shall grow out of his roots. Verse 2 says, The spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him. The spirit of wisdom and understanding the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the spirit of the fear of the Lord. So here we see this sevenfold spirit, the spirit of the Lord himself, the spirit of wisdom, the spirit of understanding, the spirit of counsel, power, knowledge, and the fear of the Lord. This is the sevenfold witness of the spirit before the throne. So that's what he's talking about in this verse. So if you need wisdom, you pray Holy Spirit, fill me with wisdom. If you need the Lord, if you need understanding, he is the counselor. 
mighty counselor, everlasting father, prince of peace. We just studied that as we looked at Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6 and 7, that verse that everybody has on something in their house when they celebrate Christmas, right? And, and, and it's quoted in the New Testament. And so he's revealing himself as father, as spirit. And then the third we have there in Revelation 1, he says, and from Jesus Christ, verse 5, the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead, and the ruler over the kings of the earth. So he doesn't just say Jesus. He says Jesus Christ, the Son, the faithful witness. Now the word witness here is where we get our word martyr. Now we think of the word martyr, many of us, and we probably think of someone who has died for their faith as a witness of Jesus Christ. John's writing from the island of Patmos, we'll find out, and he's writing as a faithful witness, a martyr. He's been put on the island of Patmos because of his faith in Jesus and his testimony of Jesus being true. And at the time that he was put on the island of Patmos, Nero had burned down half the city and blamed it on the Christians in Rome. And so because of that, massive persecution was going on. So when he calls him the faithful witness, he doesn't say a faithful witness. He says the faithful witness. And if you look at John chapter 14, we get another place where he explains Jesus himself that he is the faithful witness. I'm going to turn there real quick. John 14, verse 7. Jesus speaking here says, If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. And from now on, you will know him and have seen him. Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father, and it will be sufficient for us. And Jesus said to him, Have I been with you for so long, and yet you have not known me, Philip? He who has seen me has seen the Father, so how can you say, Show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words that I speak to you, I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does the works. Believe me that I am in the Father and the Father in me, or else believe me for the sake of the works themselves. See, Jesus wasn't a super, he wasn't using his superhuman God powers in order to do the works that he did, but it was the Father doing the works through him. He was a man. He was tempted in all ways as we are, and yet he was faithful. Now, if that temptation couldn't overcome him because he was God, then he wasn't really a sacrifice on our behalf. He wasn't really tempted as we are, because we're tempted as we're in our flesh. And yet Jesus, being fully God and fully man, he was tempted, and yet even in the wilderness when he was tempted by Satan directly, he didn't use his superhuman God powers he actually just submitted to the will of the Father. He did only the things that pleased the Father. And that included saying no to the temptation to sin and overcoming the power of sin. So here we have, he says, I am the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead. And if you read 1 Corinthians 15, verse 20 through 28, Paul speaks about this. This is the big resurrection chapter that is in um, 1 Corinthians. But it means that he was not 
the firstborn from the dead, but so much, but the first to be born and never die. Think about it. Was there people in the Old and the New Testament that were raised from the dead? People that had died, breathed their last breath, and yet were resurrected. And I would submit to you, if you look at the life of Elijah, there were people that were raised from the dead, literally. In the New Testament, we have Jesus raising Lazarus. But here's the problem. With all those resurrections, they were raised from the dead so they could die again. They were raised from the dead physically, and yet then they died. And yet Jesus, when he died and he was risen from the dead, he was risen as a firstborn that would never die again. He was raised physically and then never died. How did he leave? He was ascended into heaven physically, and he ascended to the right hand of the Father. They saw him raise and up to that point, he was eating meals with them. He was witnessed by 500 people. And so we have him risen from the dead to never die. And then also, the king from whom all earthly authority is given. So here we have, he describes himself threefold. To him who loved us, then he says in verse um, 6, to him who loved us and washed us from our sins and his own blood. Now, I struggled with this verse because I was reading and I was like, wait a minute, I thought it was written to the seven churches. But he's getting ready to um, say, all glory be to him. Because if you look down there at verse um, six, he's made us kings and priests to his God and Father. To him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. So he's saying to him and to him be glory. But I love this because it doesn't just describe who he is, but it tells us and reminds us what he has done. Who he is and what Christ has done is all wrapped up in the same thing. What he does is not detached from who he is. And I would submit to you that who you say you are and what you actually do prove what's in you, right? We would all attest to that. Well, Jesus is no different. And yet, who he is is never hypocritical from what he has done. So verse 7, he says, Behold, he is coming with clouds. Behold, he is coming with clouds, and every eye will see him, even they who pierced him. And all the tribes of the earth will mourn because of him, even so, amen. And then Jesus speaking says, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, says the Lord, who is, who was, and who is to come, the Almighty. And so he's giving glory to God who loved and washed us. He's made us kings and priests to God. According to 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9 through 10, Peter writes the same thing. He's made us a nation of priests as believers, those who represent God to the people and those who represent the people to God. We can intercede on their behalf. But he says he's coming with clouds. Now I want to take you there to make this point because in Acts chapter 1, as Jesus' disciples are with him, they go up to a place called the Mount of Olives. And this is the place that he ascended from. In Acts chapter 1 verse 9, 
after speaking to his disciples the last time? Verse 9 says, when he had spoken these things, while they watched, he was taken up and a cloud received him out of their sight. And while they looked steadfastly toward heaven as he went up, behold, two men stood by them in white apparel, who also said, men of Galilee, why do you stand gazing up into heaven? So imagine this, put yourself in the place of the disciples. They're standing on one of the most beautiful views of Jerusalem is on the Mount of Olives. And they're walking with the resurrected Jesus. And they've been with him for 40 days. And as he gets to the Mount of Olives and he ascends into the clouds, having just spoken to them, I don't know about you guys, but I'd just be standing there going, what just happened? Am I having a weird dream? Is this actually taking place? What's going to happen next? So they ascend, he ascends into the cloud. The cloud receives him. And in the meantime, they're all gawking. They're drooling on themselves. Their jaws are probably hanging low going, now what? Our whole, the last three years, we've been walking with this man. And now he's left us. What are we going to do? And so God's so faithful to instruct them. He sends two angels who are standing behind them. And they say, what are you doing? And as they're standing there, they're like, oh. He said, stop gawking up into heaven. Get to work. He's just given them the great commission. Go, make disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Teaching them all the things that I've commanded you. With, I've commanded you. And lo, I will be with you. And he's like, okay, so he said he would be with us, and yet he just left. And so what it says there, though, and the main point of reading this passage is, this same Jesus, they said, who was taken up from you into heaven will also come in like manner as you saw him go into heaven. So as he went and was received into the clouds, he's going to come back in the clouds. So I love this. He's telling them what it's going to look like. But then he also says something that is very important. Behold, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him. There are cults that say that Jesus already returned, and when he did it, he did it in secret. And so now we have our secret chamber where we keep all the scriptures, and uh, they have this society called the Watchtower Society, and they will come to your door, and they'll say, we believe in Jesus too, and they will leave stuff there for you to read that apparently are always showing up on Saturday, my point is, when Jesus, it, Jesus said to his disciples, and I think it was Matthew tr- chapter 24, but I can't remember for sure, but he said, there will be many who come in my name and say, there's Jesus, or Jesus has come back. Don't believe them. And here's why. When he comes back with the clouds, every eye will see him. And I I don't know about you guys, but sometimes we read words and we go, well, what does he mean by every eye? Well, what would you mean if you said every person, every set of eyes that can see will see him? He will not be hidden. It will be an amazing event when he returns. And so he says, he's coming with clouds. Every eye will see him, even those who pierced him. And all the tribes of the earth will mourn because of him. 
Even so, amen. So every eye will see him. The Jews will see him this time. And according to Zechariah chapter 12, verse 10, they'll look upon the one that they pierced and they will mourn. They'll actually see him this time as the Messiah. They did not see him the first time. And many people say, well, that means that God's rejected Israel. Read Romans chapter 9 through 11. God has not rejected Israel. His promises to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob are still going to come to pass. But they are blinded for a time. That's what Paul wrote so that the Gentiles would have this opportunity. You and I are living in this day where we have an opportunity, though we're not God's people, to receive the gospel, to receive salvation, though we deserve to be judged by God, and yet he's given us grace that Jesus was the savior of the whole world if we will believe in him, if we will receive him for who he is. And yet, when he comes back, Even those who pierced him, even those who rejected him as Messiah the first time, they will see him and they will look upon him and they'll even look at Jesus and say, where did you get these wounds? And he's going to say, I I was wounded, I was murdered in the house of my brethren. Because Jesus takes on these scars. He has holes in his hands. He will have the, the piercing in his side. He carries those wounds for all eternity because he took our sin upon himself. And when the disciples saw him after he was resurrected, he still bears the scars of our redemption. I love this. It's not to make us feel bad about it. I think it's really to to sober us and help us to, to know what it cost for us to be saved. But many will mourn at his coming. Many will mourn because they've rejected him and it will be too late. Many will mourn because they'll realize how much their sin hurt their Savior. And so he says, I am the first. I am the Alpha and the Omega, which is the first and the last letter in the Greek alphabet. I am the beginning and I am the end. Think about it. Genesis chapter 1 verse 1 says, in the beginning, what? God. In the beginning, God created from nothing the heavens and the earth. But in Revelation it's going to say in the end, when God says, that's it, and then all the things will come to fruition. And so therefore, I have there for you First uh, Peter chapter 4. First <clears throat> Peter in chapter 4, verse 7. The apostle Peter writes this, But the end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be serious and watchful in your prayers. And above all things, have fervent love for one another, for love will cover a multitude of sins. Be hospitable to one another without grumbling. As each one has received a gift, minister it to one another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. If anyone speaks, let him speak as the oracles of God. If anyone ministers, let him do it as with the ability which God supplies, that in all things God may be glorified through Jesus Christ, to whom belong the glory and the dominion forever and ever. Amen. And so he's not only the alpha and the omega of creation and of everything that we know, but I also want to point out what Hebrews chapter 12 says 
because I think it ties in and it is applicable for us. As much as God is the beginner, the author, and the finisher of life, he is also the author and the finisher of our individual faith. Without faith, it's impossible to please God. For he who comes must believe that he is and that he's the rewarder of those who diligently seek him, Hebrews 11. But also, him who has called you to faith will also be faithful to make sure that you're faithful till the end. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 2, he says this, well, verse 1 and 2, he says, Therefore we also, since we're surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which so easily ensnares us, and let us run with endurance the race that's set before us, looking unto Jesus, the author and the finisher of our faith, the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. His work is finished. Everything that we're partakers of, he's not fretting up there going, oh, so-and-so is struggling with this and struggling with that. He's not only paid it all for our sins, but he's also given us the power to live for him and he's, he's not worried. I don't know about you guys, but I don't sit down until I'm done with my chores for the day. Because if I sit down, I'll, get, I'll just be worn out and I'll, I'll give up. Jesus didn't sit down until his work as our faithful high priest, faithful witness, faithful savior was complete. And so, that said, with that introduction in mind, why is Jesus revealing himself to us through the book of Revelation? Why did he send this revelation? Behold, he is coming. He told us this because he is going to return. His second coming is imminent. So how ought we to live in the meantime? Well, in 1 John, which we just studied a few months ago, 1 John chapter 3 And I can't find it because I'm not good at this. First John chapter 3. I'm getting there. It's going to be great. Just building suspense. There we go. First John 3, verse 1. John writes, Behold, what manner of love the Father has bestowed upon us that we should be called children of God. Therefore, the world does not know us because it did not know Him. Beloved, now we are children of God and it has not yet been revealed what we shall be. Look at that word, that word revealed. It's not yet been revealed, unveiled, revelation, apocalypse, you know, the unveiling of what we shall be. It's not yet been unveiled. But we know that when he is unveiled, when he is revealed, we shall be like him. For we shall see him as he is. And everyone, here's the point, everyone who has this hope in him does his part to purify himself, just as Jesus is pure. So what is the revelation of Jesus supposed to do for the believer? And I would submit the point of the, the book of Revelation is not only to reveal Jesus, 
but to reveal to us that if we are in his likeness, if we are actually discipled by him, if we are actually imitating him and following him in his steps, our lives should become more pure through the reading and revealing of Jesus as he is already pure. If we want to be like the one who has saved us, we need to see him for what he is. Now, on this side of heaven, we'll only be able to see through a glass dimly. We won't see it as clear as we possibly could because we still have this veil over our eyes. But when we see him, the beautiful part is that when we see him, we will actually reflect his glory in heaven. And so until then, we're this, this, this work in progress. And we all need to have a little bit more of Jesus revealed to us. But until then, we just look to him. We seek him. And the blessing is that through that, we'll become like him and people will see Jesus revealed through you and I. Can you believe that? That Jesus actually wants to reveal himself to us. And through revealing himself to us, he wants to reveal himself to others through us. Now you might say, that's not possible. You don't know how jacked up I am. But to me, as I see God continually changing me and the people around me, and as I read the Bible even, just read the Bible. God can use anybody to reveal himself. It just calls for us to be willing recipients of that grace because nobody deserves to get to reveal God. And yet he wants to reveal himself through us. And I just take that as a huge privilege and honor and something not to be taken lightly. So Father, um, thank you for this book. I thank you, Jesus, that, that you want to reveal yourself and have a relationship with us at all. We're undeserving. We're not worthy. I, I in particular, am not worthy of your, the least of your blessings. And yet, Lord, you see fit to use the unworthy to show how worthy that you are. And so, Father, would you, as we study this book and as we go about our lives, would you take these words that the Apostle John wrote down at your leading and would you use them to purify us so that we would become more like the one who saved us? In Jesus' name, amen.